I'm really excited because today we begin a new series of teachings in our church. So if you're a visitor or you're just starting out at River West, you picked a great Sunday to join the church. This new series is going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday, right through, right through Passion Week, right through Good Friday, and right up to Easter Sunday. If you can believe it, Easter Sunday is now on our calendars, folks, all right? You can see it out there. And uh, super excited about this series. It's going to take us to Easter, where we will celebrate once again as a church the very center of our Christian faith, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a wonderful celebration. And we want to prepare for that as a church. And so one of the things we do each year is at about this time, we launch a series that will help us to prepare to enter into that time as a worshiping community. And the book in the Bible that is going to be our guide is the book of Isaiah. So if you would turn to the book of Isaiah, and let's get ready to be in the Word. And while you're turning there, I, uh, I'm going to ask you a question this morning that I want you to sit with for just a little bit while we get ready to study the word together. And the question is this, what would happen to your life if God were to expand today your vision of God? What would happen to you? How would that impact you? What would change in your life? What would happen if your vision, your view of God were to be expanded to something that's even bigger than it is right now? Perhaps for some of you, your vision of God is already so big that you would literally just explode, right? Or you'd just float up out of the building or something. But for the rest of us, if you're anything like me, you're probably sitting there and you're thinking, I really need a bigger vision of God. My vision of God is not big enough. And it's not just that I want to see God more clearly, which hopefully you do. I do. I want a bigger vision of God, but I need a bigger vision of God because I know that I need to change. I need to get moving in my life. And the way to get moving, the way to change is for, it's for God to show us a little bit more of his glory, his majesty, his beauty. How wonderful would that be? So just imagine it for a minute. Think about your life. Where are you at right now? What would happen? How would you change if you saw God more clearly? Maybe if that happened for you today, you would get some courage. Maybe you need courage to step into something. Maybe God's been calling you to step into something and you're really scared and you need courage. And you know, if I got a bigger vision of God, I'd get the courage I need. Or maybe for you what right now, you just need strength to keep going because you're going through something really, really hard. And you came in here today and people on your left, people on your right don't know this, but you are literally barely holding on for life. And you need strength. If you got a vision of God, you'd get strength. Maybe for you... If you got a bigger vision of God, it would finally fulfill you. You've, you've had this insatiable quest to find fulfillment in the things of this world. And every time you come in, you're not fulfilled. And you know, if I could just see God more clearly. Or maybe God would give you the desire and the power to walk away from that sin that has you tangled up and you've been in bondage. Or maybe for you, if you got a vision of God, 
you would just finally turn things over to Jesus and become a Christian. How great would that be? It'd be wonderful. River West, can I tell you something? I have this strong sense that our church is about to enter into a season where God is going to do this very thing. He's going to give us a bigger vision of how wonderful he is, how majestic he is. And we need it. We need it. And God wants to do it because God knows that will be the thing that will get the church moving. I want my people to change. And so God wants to change us. That's going to be our goal for the next two months together. And the book of Isaiah is going to be our guide. There are nine Sundays between today and Easter Sunday. And there are more than nine chapters in the book of Isaiah. Okay. So uh, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out we're not preaching every chapter of Isaiah. What we're preaching is a section of Isaiah in the middle of the book. I want you to turn there now to chapter 40. Isaiah is made up of three units. It's a big book. The first, the first unit is chapters 1 to 39. The second unit, which we're going to focus on, is chapters 40 to 55. And then the third unit picks up at 56 and goes to the end of the book. And if you know anything about Isaiah, you probably know that from chapters 40 to 55, we get some of the most beautiful, poetic, rich, theologically deep scripture in the entire Bible. We get a vision of, of a servant who will suffer. We get a vision of God. We get lofty things about who God is. We get deep gospel theology. It's amazing and wonderful. And we also get the title for our series, which we're calling Behold Your God. And I want to read to you the verse that that comes from. It's in chapter 40 in verse 9. Will you look at it with me in your Bible? Here's what Isaiah says. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. There it is. That's what we're going to do. We're going to behold God. And that word behold in Hebrew is very emphatic, it's a very strong word. It means more than just, hey, look. It's God. There's something else going on there with the word behold. It indicates an unveiling. Something that was once hidden has now been revealed. Something that was once in the shadows is brought into the light. Something that for some reason was veiled, you couldn't see it, is revealed. And Isaiah says, it's God. God is revealing himself to us. And we get to see him. And it's beautiful. When I read this verse, I can't help thinking about that moment in all of the home remodel shows where they do the big reveal. This is really silly, I know. But it's, I can't, I think about this. We love these shows. And there's always that moment in the show where they let the couple, they do the big reveal, right? And they get to see their new house. And who are the masters of the reveal on HGTV? Tell me their names. Chip and Joanna Gaines. These people are cult leaders, okay? They're cult leaders. There they are. And they're pregnant too, both of them, Chip and Joanna. <laughs> telling you right now, these, so they're actually canceling their show. And I thought our country was going to shut down when this happened. But anyway, they're the masters of the reveal, are they not? And you see it coming and you know you're going to cry and it's coming and they're going to show the house to the couple. And they have this moment where they blindfold the couple and then they take the blindfold off. And what are the people looking at? 
they're looking at a cardboard wall with a picture of their old house, right? And they can't see. There's like a little crack and you can kind of see through it. And oh, the lawn looks manicured. And then there's this big moment where Joanna says, okay, now Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so, behold your new house. And then they cut to the commercial break, right? And you're like, oh. And then there's five more minutes of recap. And then they take you right back to that scene and they pull it back. And the couple cries and the house is beautiful. And it's amazing. And it's the reveal. Now, Go back to the moment where you can't quite see and what you're looking at is the old thing. And what I want you to think about is this is where you are today and God wants to open the veil. Always, every day of your life, he wants to, he wants to open up your vision just a little bit more where you see a just a bit more of the glory of God, the majesty of God. And let me tell you something. You and I need this more than anything else. See, God knows something about us. He knows that the reason we get stuck sometimes, the reason we get knocked out of balance in our Christian life, the reason we sort of slow down and we stop moving is because we haven't seen enough of God's glory. And so God in his grace reveals more. And it's amazing. And that's what Isaiah 40 is about. So let's go back. Let's work through this passage today. We're going to tackle ch uh, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. That's our text. We're going to work through it. We're going to chew on it. I'm going to say some stuff along the way, and then we're going to take communion together. In Isaiah 40, verse 1, the people are stuck. They need to get moving. And so God comes and shows them something about himself. Will you read it with me? Verse 1, comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare or that word could be translated hardship. Her hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The setting of Isaiah 40 verse 1 is the Babylonian exile. In 586 BC, the king of Babylon swept into Jerusalem with military might. He sacked the city. Many people were killed. People who survived, many of them were carried off into captivity. And the king of Babylon carried all of many of these Jewish people back across the Arabian Peninsula to the eastern side of Mesopotamia, of the, of the Fertile Crescent, modern-day Iraq. And the people lived there in exile, and, I, and Isaiah had actually predicted that that would happen. In Isaiah 39, he actually came to King Hezekiah and said, this is going to happen. And he, and he was warning the king. Actually, Isaiah had been warning the people of Israel for 39 chapters. Obey God, follow God, be faithful to God. If, you don't, if you're not faithful, you will go into exile. And the people were faithless. They disobeyed God. And so finally, the king of Babylon came and they, they went into captivity. And when we pick up in chapter 40, verse 1, this is the setting. It's a people who are receiving this word and they have, they've been ripped from their homes, ripped from their land, ripped from their, their place of worship, they're in an unfamiliar place. They're demoralized. They're disillusioned. They're broken. And what's even worse is they're actually, many of them are blaming God. 
We read about this next week. We'll see this next week. Many of the people actually blame God and accuse God for what's happened to them. It's just almost like human nature. We, we live the way we want to live in this world, and then things don't go right, and then we blame God for what's happened, and we demand an excuse from him. It's the human way, I think. And how does God respond to people who are in that kind of a situation? He comes to them with a word of comfort. Just look at the tone of verses 1 and 2. What is God wanting us to see about his character? The language is unexpected. It's very tender. He says, comfort, comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. God wants his people to see tenderness. He wants his people to see forgiveness. It was very unexpected. I I would imagine for the people in exile, they expected a harsh God or an angry God or a judgmental God, and they got a very different vision of God. It was a God who who comes with comfort and tenderness and forgiveness. And my guess is it caught them totally off guard, right? And it's because their vision of God was, was really small. You know, often... It's how you picture God when you've stumbled that will tell you what your real view of God is. Think about this for a minute. How do you imagine the countenance of God when you've blown it? How do you imagine God approaching you when you're sitting in the in the midst of the evidence of your disobedience or your sin or your ugliness? What is, what's the expression on his face in your grossest moment when you've been caught, right? Well, that'll tell you a lot about your vision of God. My daughters love to show me these YouTube videos where dog owners have caught their dog doing something disobedient. You know these videos? They're just so ridiculous, but we watch them. And there's always adorable, like, yellow lab who got into the garbage can, right? And then the owner catches it on film, and they're like, Rufus, what did you do? And then the dog's eyes go down, and it's shifting back and forth, and the tail starts, like, quivering a little bit. And sometimes I think, man, I wonder if that's how we are postured before God when we blow it. It's sort of a small vision of God. And God, God says, you know what? I love you. And even that moment where you've, where you've just totally blown it, I want to come to you with a, with a message of comfort, tenderness. It's amazing. What's the source of the comfort? Well, read on. Look at, look at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah hears a voice crying and the message is this. Hey, my people in captivity... God is going to visit you. Yeah, you're out there and it's horrible and you've, and you've blown it. You've been unfaithful. Do you know what? God is on his way 
to rescue you. And it's a vision of God coming out of the wilderness like a triumphant king. In the ancient world, when a king would conquer a, a territory, he would go on, a, on a, like a victory tour and he would visit every major town and city and he would send out in front of him a road construction crew and they would build highways. And then the king would march into town after town on this straight highway. And I, I picture the people of Israel in Babylon looking out into the desert and here comes God like a triumphant king and he's coming to visit them and it's a picture of salvation. And God says, I want you to realize sal salvation is not something that God does from a distance in sort of a lofty place. Salvation happens when God visits his people. It's not something that, it's not an idea that God drops down from a lofty place in heaven. Salvation is, is up close and personal. Salvation is about being in God's presence. God literally is going to show up and it's good news. And Isaiah announces it. And not only is God going to visit his people, but they're going to get to see his glory. Did you see that? Verse 5. Read it again. Look at it on the printed page. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. There's that word revealed. You couldn't see this before, but now God's going to reveal it. And all flesh shall see it together. Okay. Now this week, I had the kind of experience that I'm going to call sort of like a, a deeply convicting, deeply profound epiphany, like an aha kind of a moment. It happened on Friday morning. I was here at the church. I had gotten here early. We've been remodeling our own house. Thank you, Chip Gaines. Not really. But anyway, we're remodeling our house. And we don't have an off. I don't have a home office. So I come to the church now. And I get here pretty early. On this Friday, I was here really early, like 4.45 in the morning. All right? And I'm sitting in my office. And I'm reading this verse. Look, look at it again. I'm reading this verse. And what's happening is I'm, I'm stumbling over this verse. And here's what happened. I got super convicted because it dawned on me that when I talk about the gospel as a pastor, too much of the time, I'm not talking about the most important thing about the gospel. We talk about the gospel a lot at the church and there's many beautiful truths in the message of the gospel. And they're so lofty and they're so beautiful that when we talk about them, we can get so focused on all of these individual truths that we can actually not tell people about the one thing for which the gospel is actually leading them. So the gospel is about Jesus. Jesus and we know this, and that's beautiful. Jesus is the promised king. He's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. And Jesus would come into the world and be the perfect king. And finally, there would be shalom in the land. And that is beautiful and true. But that is not the primary goal of the gospel. That's not where the gospel's taking you. Jesus is not only the king, he's actually the Messiah. He's God's savior. He died for human sin. He rose again on the third day. Through Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. You can get new life. You can get freedom from bondage. And you can have 
eternal life given to you and new birth and get to go to heaven. And all of those truths are amazing and beautiful. But if, if those are the only truths we talk about, we're actually not taking people to where the gospel is trying to take them. And so teachers teach and preachers preach about the gospel and sometimes they get focused on all these things, but we're missing something absolutely vital. What makes Good Friday good? What makes Easter Sunday a celebration? What's good about the good news? Where's the gospel taking you? The reason the gospel is good news is because after all is said and done and after you've heard it and it's transformed your life, what you get is you get God. You get to see him in all of his glory. And anything that was preventing your view from God is taken away by the power of the gospel. And we have to talk about that, River West. That's where the gospel is trying to take you today. To that place where you could finally see God and know God and enjoy God and be in his presence and be satisfied in your soul by being with God. How amazing. A couple years ago, I heard John Piper give a sermon, and John Piper's very intense, okay? He's a super intense preacher. I like him. He's great. And he likes to ask really evocative questions. And in this one sermon, he was preaching, and he said to the people, would you still enjoy heaven if God was not there? Now, God, you, there's no such thing as heaven without God, right? But here's the point. There's many beautiful things about heaven. And there's a lot of great reasons to go there. But would we still want to go there if we didn't get to enjoy God? And in the Christian life, we can enjoy things about being in the church and reading the Bible and having fellowship with one another. And all those things are good. But none of them are good if we don't have the ultimate good, which is seeing God, knowing God, and being in the presence of his glory. Amen. Did you know that throughout the scriptures, the ultimate spiritual experience is getting to see God in his glory? Moses wanted to see more of God. So in Exodus 33, he's wrestling with God. God has told him, you're going to lead my people into the promised land. And Moses says, I, I can't do it without you, Lord. And he begs God, God, show me more of your glory. Exodus 33. David, King David, wrote a psalm, Psalm 27, 4. I'll put this up so you can read along with me. David talked about his insatiable desire to be in God's presence. He said, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. How about you? About five years ago, I went on a spiritual retreat. And I do this a lot where uh, sometimes I go for a week and sometimes I'll just go for a couple days. This was one where it was a long Sunday and I had planned to pack up my bags on Sunday night and drive out to the beach. And I was really excited to go. It had been a long week. I got in my car and as I drove out of Portland, headed out to the beach, I started to get so excited. And I actually got really emotional, and I was sort of like, I was just feeling all of these emotions, and I, I realized I am so excited to just be with God. 
to be in his presence. And it was this powerful, beautiful drive. I drove out towards the coast. And then you know what happened? I woke up Monday morning, and you know what happened all day Monday for me spiritually? Nothing. It was a total waste. It was like dead zone. And I, 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 went back to, I went to bed Monday night. I got up Tuesday and I drove home and I was like, what the heck, Lord? What was that all about? And you know what the Lord said to me? He said, the whole purpose of that whole trip was your experience on the drive out Friday night. I wanted to know, do you want to be with me? Do you want to be with me? To enjoy me, to be in my presence, to experience my glory. What's the glory of God? The glory of God is this. The glory of God is the manifestation of his absolute reality. The glory of God means that God himself becomes visible. He brings his presence down to us and he displays his beauty before us. To be allowed to see God in all his glory is the answer to your deepest longings. To be allowed to see the glory of God is the solution to every single one of your problems. To see God in his glory. Did you know that? That's what you're craving more than anything else. Now our world is constantly distracting you from that deeper desire. But that is what you were created for. And the thing that's interesting about Isaiah is that Isaiah is going to show us in our study, we're going to realize that the glory of God is, is it's not what you think it is. So let me give you a little preview of a couple places we're going to be. Turn to Isaiah 42. Just turn ahead a couple pages. I'm going to read to you a verse from Isaiah 42, and then I'm going to read to you a verse from Isaiah 52. And both of these passages are about this mysterious character that Isaiah is going to introduce us to. Isaiah calls him the servant. And then later he calls him the suffering servant. And, in, and Isaiah really wants us to understand who this person is. So in Isaiah 42, verse 1, we get introduced for the first time. And look how Isaiah says it. What's that first word? He says, behold. There it is. Whereas before, Isaiah had said, behold, your God. Now God says, actually, who I want you to behold is my servant. My servant whom, I'm, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, turn now to Isaiah 52. And in our series, we're going to focus in on these servant poems. We're going to understand who this person is. But we get a little bit more in Isaiah 52, verse 13. With the same word, it begins a sentence, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And we like that. That sounds like glory. So whoever this servant is, we're going to see God's glory in him. And he'll be lifted up. He'll be highly exalted. 
And when that happens, we'll see his glory. But it's not the kind of lifting up that we're expecting it to be because look what Isaiah says next. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. There's, a mis- there's, a, there's something hidden here because Isaiah is seeing, saying, in order to understand the glory of God, you have to look at the servant. But when you look at the servant, you're going to look at something that you don't want to keep looking at. Someone who's so marred, so stricken, so pitiful, so unattractive that if we were only looking with human sensibilities and human values, we would be tempted to look away. But when we look with eyes of faith, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we see in that servant the reason for his suffering, we begin to see something of the glory of God. And Isaiah says that's the only way to see God's glory. Amazing. That's what we're going to do in our study in Isaiah. It's going to take us right up to Good Friday, right? Okay, well, there's one more thing Isaiah wants us to see, and we're going to run out of time. So go back to Isaiah 40, and let me tell you the last thing Isaiah wants us to know about the glory of God. Isaiah, here's one more thing that God asks him to cry out. God says, there's one more thing I want you to say to my people, and when we hear it, it's going to sound a little bit strange because God tells Isaiah to tell us that we are unreliable and very temporary. And he compares us to grass. Verse six, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty or all its constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. In, on the Arabian Peninsula there, there's a wind that blows up in May. It comes from the south through Egypt and through modern-day Saudi Arabia up into Palestine. It's called the, it's called the Himza. And this wind is, is so hot, sometimes it exceeds 100 degrees and it blows with its sand and it blows so, it'll, it will exceed 100 miles an hour often. So when you think of like sandstorms, this is this wind. And when this wind blows through in about May, all of the grass that's still green turns brown in 24 hours. That's how hot it is and dusty and sandy. And Isaiah says, I want you to think about that piece of grass because that piece of grass is the perfect illustration for human temporariness and significance. As fast as a piece of grass grows up, so fast it withers and dies. And Isaiah says, that's you. You know, I love you, but that's you, okay? And when you're hearing it, you're thinking, okay, so here's where Isaiah is going. He's going to compare us to God. God's eternal and we're temporary. God is significant and we're insignificant. And, we, and the reader assumes that's where Isaiah is going. But that's not where Isaiah is going. And that's not the contrast he's going to draw. So what is the contrast? Look at verse 8. He says, the grass withers, the flower fades. That's you. What's eternal? The word of God will stand forever. 
Isaiah says, do not depend on human beings. Do not build your life on human wisdom or human dependability or human ingenuity. There's only one thing that you can build your life on that you can rely on, and it's the word of God. It's eternal and good, and you can trust it, right? Human beings will fail you. There's one thing that will never fail you. Yes, it's God, but, but Isaiah says, there's one thing that God has left us through which we can know him, and it's his word. You can build your life on the word of God, River West. We can build our life on the word of God. That's why for 30 years in this church, even when there were six people sitting in a circle, every Sunday that we gather, what does the pastor say? All right, people, pull out your Bible. <laughs> Let's open the word together. And we're never gonna stop doing it. We're never gonna stop doing it. This is how we come to see God in his glory. Did you know that there's a direct connection between your view of God and your view of his word? If you have a low view of God, you'll have a low view of the word. And what Isaiah is saying to our church today is it's time to let go of your lack of trust in the reliability of scripture. Let go of that. If you come in today and you don't totally trust the word, you're thinking, this was written by human beings. Isaiah says, you gotta let go of that and you gotta put, you have to build your life on the word. You can trust God and you can trust his word. And actually, you'll never see God in all of his glory unless you are anchored in the word through whom that God is revealed. Amen? And here's the thing. The only way to build your life on the word of God, if you want to build your life on the word of God, you know what you have to do? You actually have to read it. You got to read it. You have to read the word. And I know, I know Christians who are like, I love the word. I totally believe it. It's infallible. Do you read it? Nah, I don't read it. You know, I'm too busy. I'm important. I'm doing stuff, moving, shaking, Instagram, all of it. And here's the thing. People who see the glory of God are the people who are anchored in the word of God every day. The first thing you do, River West, I'm standing in front of you today and I'm calling you to build your life on the word of God every day. Read God's word and start with Isaiah. Read Isaiah 40. Read it today. Read it during the Super Bowl. We all know who's going to win anyway, all right? <laughs> it's a team from the East Coast, so just move on and read, the, read Isaiah. And then read Isaiah 41. And then read Isaiah 42 and read all the way to 55 and then start over and pray every day, God, show me your glory in your word. I guarantee you, if you do this, you are gonna get moving in your Christian faith and it's gonna be wonderful. Let's pray about it right now. Lord, how we need you to reveal your glory. We need it today. We need it right now as we worship. We need it when we wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next. That with every passing day, we would see a little bit more and, and it would transform us. And we're praying for it. And we're praying for it not just as individuals. We're praying for it as a community of faith. Your people, we believe that when we gather in your name, you're here. 
and your glory is with us. Help us to see it, we pray. Help us to see it today in the bread and the cup. Help us to see like the Apostle Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians 4, that it's in the face of Jesus Christ that the full display of your glory is revealed. We want to see it, God. The servant who suffered. The servant who was afflicted for our iniquities. The servant who hurt for our sin. Help us to see glory there, we pray. And I want to pray this morning for any who have come today and they're stuck. Would you move people today, God, in your grace? Move them forward. I know there are people who've come in today and they've been resisting you and I know you're drawing them with love and comfort into a relationship with Jesus. Give them courage today to turn over control to Christ as Savior and Lord. It's a simple prayer. You just, you just pray, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins, that you rose again, and there's forgiveness in one name and one name only, and then call upon his name in your heart, Jesus. You could do it today. How I pray for that. We thank you, Lord. We give you glory, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.